stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Thanks again for joining us here today on a Thursday afternoon. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you. The way to reach us, 403-974-TALK. That's 974-8255. We'll have more time for your phone calls. Uh, We can read some of your texts. Same number for both, of course, and much more still to come. Let's begin with some uh, encouraging and uh, interesting news out of the Middle East. And uh, it concerns the so-called Islamic State, ISIS. Their capital, Raqqa, has fallen. It's not been entirely liberated. It's believed that there are still some some parts of the city that that, uh, are controlled by ISIS. But more or less, they've lost control of the city. And this is a very encouraging development. There have been some incredible images we've seen in recent days. Certainly to me, the images that have stood out are these uh, female Kurdish fighters and the uh, emotional women who are now shedding the burqas that uh, they were forced to wear by their ISIS rulers. There's also some harrowing images of just the devastation in the city. It's really quite incredible. Uh, But there's still a lot of questions that if ISIS is on the run, if ISIS is closer to defeat, do they lash out? Is is there an increased danger in the short term? Where do they go from here? Is there a void that, that other groups may seek to fill? Of course, there's questions about what it means for Syria. There's also the issue now we're grappling with uh, with our Kurdish allies. At a referendum recently, Kurdish uh, voters voted overwhelmingly for an independent Kurdish state. I think there's a compelling case to be made for an independent Kurdish state. But of course, the government of Baghdad is not happy about the idea. And there were some skirmishes in Kirkuk, uh, Kirkuk recently. And I think there's a real concern. So it presents a dilemma of sorts, I think, certainly for, for the Americans, by extension, Canadians, Brits, and others. Uh, how do we handle this? How do we handle our, our alliances with the Kurds and, and what I think is a compelling case for, for autonomy, but also trying to keep Iraq from descending into a civil war, keeping Iranian influence to a minimum as well? So a lot of big questions here. Joining us uh, to explore more of this, very pleased to welcome to the program, David Gardenstein-Ross, Senior Fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, DefendDemocracy.org. Uh, David, great to talk to you once again. Welcome back to the program. Thank you, Rob. It's always uh, an honor to join your program. Well, thanks for saying so. Let's start with the news uh, about Raqqa. So how significant is this in your view? It's significant. Um, ISIS has um, based a lot on its claim to territoriality. Um, It declared its caliphate in part because it controlled enough territory to um, claim a caliphate. And, um, you know, it controlled a, a larger contiguous swath of territory um, than any uh, contemporary jihadist group ever has. Uh, they also, incidentally, got Islamic prophecy wrong. Um, the way their caliphate has fallen doesn't at all um, accord with Islamic prophecy. So they have some explaining to do, as they say, to yeah. their followers. It's not necessarily the end of ISIS by any means. There's a lot that can sustain them. But this moment, uh, let no one doubt is in fact a significant moment what about their leader i mean there have been stories over the past year or so various accounts of uh al-baghdadi's death uh it, it appears as though he's alive but but likely on the run did can we say with any certainty what's become of him he appears to be alive um and you're correct <clears throat> that he is uh 
I mean, not just likely, but certainly on the run. Um, from the, the places that he's been to, um, you know, we, we know that, that many of the areas that were significant to Baghdadi uh, have now fallen to coalition forces, um, which means that he is indeed fleeing. Um, <clears throat> one of the reasons I think that his death keeps getting um, announced uh, seemingly inaccurately is it's known that, that Baghdadi frequently wears a mask. And um, that being so, it's easy to mistake him for someone else. Uh, that's something where you, you might think that you've gotten the right guy, but in, in obscuring his face, that can serve as not only a security measure, but it, it could also allow a situation where similar to Saddam Hussein during his rule, you could have body doubles serving in place, standing in uh, for the real Baghdadi. Mm-hmm. So in terms of, of how ISIS can can adapt and survive after these setbacks, uh, I mean, Al-Qaeda, as an example, never had a capital city, never had a caliphate, uh, yet Al-Qaeda persists as an organization. Does that tell us maybe how ISIS can survive? ISIS is a different kind of, of organization, though. Yes, it tells us a lot about how ISIS can survive. And in fact, they almost certainly are going to be reaching in in some way uh, to the al-Qaeda playbook, at least the al-Qaeda circa 2001 to 2003 playbook, to sustain themselves. Uh, one thing they've built up is an extraordinarily impressive terrorist apparatus. Uh, they've been able to launch major attacks on you know, basically every continent um, other than Antarctica. Right. And uh, that um, is something that they can use to keep their brand soaring high. Um, that's one reason, I think, why we've seen um, a, a, an increasing emphasis in their um, propaganda on both the battlefield and also on terrorist attacks themselves. Whereas if you go back a year, two years, there was a lot of emphasis on the supposed utopia that the caliphate represented. At this point, that's a, a far less prominent propaganda um, theme for them given how the caliphate is unraveling before everyone's eyes. Right. So it would be dangerous to think that because the caliphate is, is unraveling, that there's there's not a terrorist threat that this group poses. Oh, clearly. Now, the terrorist threat could be reduced um, if the external operations apparatus, which is known as the Amn al-Kharji, is taken out in a significant way. Um, that's a possibility. Secondly, they're not going to have the resources and the, the territory to um, plan things like the the Paris urban warfare attacks. That's not to say that there can't be other urban warfare attacks or that future urban warfare attacks might not be more successful. I mean, we could see, obviously, recently in Las Vegas, you had almost 60 people killed just by a single well-placed gunman. So they they can do a lot of damage without having the extensive training that they did for Paris. Um, But the Paris operation, uh, which I think is the most spectacular operation that ISIS has executed, at least in a Western state, um, is something where they won't be able to undertake the same kind of training that relies on territory, at least not until they find another safe haven, which they don't have now. So in some ways, it clearly has gotten safer. But that's not to say, as you had said, Rob, that terrorism uh, does not remain a threat. It does. Well, and, and certainly they, they've been able to win over adherents uh, to, to bring people to the cause and, and have those followers take up the fight where they happen to be. The, the point you made earlier, though, about 
this group losing credibility, losing influence, does that have that, that trickle-down effect? Yeah. Um, it, when they were riding high, I mean, they, they very much staked themselves to a winner's message. Uh, people uh, wanted to flock to them in part because they seemed to be winning. So, I, I, you know, look, we can't t- say for a fact uh, whether um, it will reduce their ability to uh, appeal to adherents. I believe that it will. But l- let's have a, a word of caution. You alluded to this in your introduction when you asked whether ISIS's decline leaves room for other groups to step in and fill in the void. Yeah. Uh, regardless of ISIS, the organization, jihadism, the movement, continues to be an ascendant movement. Uh, Al-Qaeda is actually very well positioned. We haven't, um, at least most people, haven't really talked about Al-Qaeda much in recent years. Uh, I'm an exception to that. But they've put themselves in a situation where they can operate more openly in the region than before, in part by playing off of ISIS. Um, In fact, in their propaganda, they very directly um, say that ISIS, you know, those guys are the true extremists. Al-Qaeda has repositioned themselves as the moderate jihadists. And, you know, while we think it's farcical in in North America, um, within the region, um, it does seem that that they've made some traction and they can operate in places now where they once couldn't. And if you look country to country, there's still multiple countries that have been racked by jihadism and where you have active insurgencies or even jihadists controlling a significant amount of territory, not just Iraq, Syria, but also in Yemen, in Libya, in Mali, in Somalia, um, you know, there's there's multiple countries. Egypt should also be added to that list as well. Just coming back to, to Las Vegas for a second, you'd mentioned that. It, it certainly struck a lot of people as interesting that, that a group like ISIS would make a claim, double down on a claim, almost triple down on a claim, that, that somehow this, this shooter had converted to, to Islam, had, had joined the cause, and there, there doesn't seem to be a shred of evidence that that's the case. Assuming it's not the case, why, why would they make that claim? It's an interesting question. Um, generally speaking, um, many observers overstate the degree to which ISIS makes face false claims of, of attacks. You know, there's this line of analysis that says ISIS will claim anything, but they don't. Um, I mean, I think there, there's two possibilities. You know, one possibility is that they're actually telling the truth. Uh, let's assume, though, that they're not. If they're lying about it, then um, I think the, there's a couple of possibilities there. One could be that um, they were actually picking this up from uh, pro-ISIS chatter. In other words, that the AMAC news agency, which made the claim, you had some um, staffer there who was following uh, pro-ISIS chatter and saw people making claims about it and then recirculated those claims. Um, a second possibility, and I think the, the likelier one, if it's false, is that ISIS wanted to show that it can still get people to think about it when something, when, when an atrocity occurs, right? Like that even though it's false, to them there was some propaganda victory in just being able to have people say, well, is it ISIS? Is it ISIS? Um, to, to show that they're still the, you know, the top brand in terms of terrorism, mass killings, and bad things happening, at least in terms of people, person-to-person killings in the world. Yeah. 
Uh, and David, let me ask you about what, what's happening within Iraq. Of course, as we, we um, celebrate uh, the Kurds' advances uh, against ISIS, of course, uh, we've now got ourselves a bit of a dilemma in, in Iraq. Do we support uh, the Kurds' desires for, for self-rule? Do we uh, ignore that in the interest of, of keeping Iraq unified? There's some tough choices to be made. There are tough choices to be made. Um, I, I think that one thing that's very clear is that the, Kurdi, the Kurds uh, put in their, their referendum for independence when militarily they weren't able to sustain independence in the face of an Iraqi military advance. You know, the Iraqi military has um, seized Kirkuk. Um, according to uh, Kurdish officials, 100,000 uh, Kurds have fled from the area. Um, I would view um, that number with skepticism, but it's clear that uh, there are Kurdish people fleeing from that area. Um, very significant about Kirkuk is that the Iraqi military also seized the oil fields there which basically cut the amount of oil that the Kurds control in half. You have a very significant financial blow to aspirations for Kurdish independence. Um, you know, one of the, the problems for both U.S. and Canadian policy is that um, you know, the U.S. and Canada just wield much less influence in Iraq than they have before. And so it's not necessarily about what we would like to see. I mean, I personally would like to see Kurdish independence. But it's not clear that the U.S. can advance it in a meaningful way. And, you know, if the U.S. tried to do so, it's not clear that the U.S. would be willing to pay the cost that it would take to advance Kurdish independence. Um, ultimately, you know, Iraq does not want to lose that region. And it's making clear right now that it will fight to sustain the unity of that state. Well, yeah, some challenging days ahead. Uh, David, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, much more at defenddemocracy.org. Always appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for joining us. Great talking to you. Take care, Rob. Take care. David Gardenstein-Ross, Senior Fellow with the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Uh, so some interesting thoughts from him. Uh, we'll take a quick break here. 403-974-8255 is a number. We're back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.